This week in part two of Commissioner Ed Davis and the Boston Marathon bombing, Commissioner Davis takes us on the inside of the investigation, gives us information we haven't heard before, and makes a shocking revelation. Did they act alone? Are there other people out there you believe are involved in the Boston Marathon bombing that have yet to be identified or accounted for? Well, I, 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 I don't think they acted alone in the construction of that device. Um, as, as to who did that and what kind of evidence you have on it, um, I'll leave that up to the people that are doing the follow-on investigation. But um, I, I, I don't think those devices were made from Inspire magazine or from the Internet. And I don't think you can squeeze that much gunpowder out of a firework uh, to make something like that. I think that uh, there's something else going on there. And I and I, I will tell you that that investigation is still active. So I hope that um, if they if they get enough evidence and they can point to somebody else that they that they bring them in. Welcome to Game of Crimes. They also had internal meetings and came to the conclusion that since the FSB was a hostile foreign intelligence service, they couldn't put complete credence in what they were being told. But, you know, but Ed, that leads in later then to the, with the CIA, too, getting the same information. And they provided the information to the National Counterterrorism Center, what they call the NCTC. Um, and this, Tamerlane ended up being watch-listed on two watch- And let me tell you, this is the thing that drove me nuts when I was working down at Justice on Information Sharing, and we were talking about 9-11. One of the main people involved in 9-11 was Nawaf al-Hazmi. He was probably number two next to Mohammed Atta. He was stopped in April of 2001, written a traffic ticket by the Oklahoma Highway Patrol. In August, he was put on a watch list. The only problem is he's already in the country. You know, we, we missed the opportunity to connect the dots. And so I see him now being put on two watch lists. I mean, if you put somebody on a watch list, there has to be at least some next. Because I, I worked on consolidation of the terrorist watch list down at the Department of Homeland Security when there used to be 25 and 28 and it was really unwieldy. You know, you got to bring it down to a small set. You just don't get onto a watch list because somebody's having a bad day. You get onto a watch list because there's got to be some indicia of terrorism or criminal activity that says we don't want you in this country. I, am I wrong? No, no, you're right. Um, and, and I don't know how these things can happen. It, it makes no sense to me. Well, because on the uh, 10th anniversary of 9-11, there's a triple homicide, and Tamerlan's a suspect in that. Give us just some details on that. Well, um, you know, this homicide happened in Middlesex County. Uh, Jerry Leone was the DA there. Uh, Tommy Sullivan was a trooper assigned to the case. I know both men. They're both very good investigators. Um and and it was a case that we, I remember hearing about it because it was so it was so bizarre in nature. Um, there were three individuals who were stabbed to death, and um, it was a it was a gory, ugly scene. And uh, w- when the police got there, they found marijuana sprinkled over the uh, over the victims, uh, which is a clear indicator that there's a drug nexus to the to the incident. And uh, you know, there, there, there's probably an organized criminal group um, involved in that that's sending a message out not only to the 
to the to the poor victims who were murdered, but also to anyone who associated with them. That um, that you know, we're, when we've seen this before, we've seen people do this before, just to send a warning that either I or we are a group to be reckoned with. And uh, and so that's what we thought at the time. Um, but we, uh, you know, we thought that it would be a a marijuana dealer and. Uh, I had had a, a double homicide a few a couple of years before of two young brothers who uh, who were murdered by a uh, um, over a marijuana deal, but it was uh, by a drug dealer that was dealing heroin and cocaine and uh, was heavily involved in these things. So I thought it was going to be a repeat of what I had seen. I didn't expect a nexus to to terrorism on that. I don't think any of the people that were investigating it did either. Because just when you put the dates, right, so uh, September of uh, 2011, you got the triple homicide. You've also got, he's added now to the terrorism watch list. He's added to the terrorist watch list. But it's four months later that really is kind of one of the things when we talked about this. So folks know that I'm not ambushing you with stuff. We actually said, here's what we want to talk about. So January, now, Tamerlan is able now, he's not a U.S. citizen, does not have a passport, is able to go from Boston's Logan Airport, connect through JFK, and go to Russia and come back into the country. And he's on two terrorist watch lists, and he's, A, gets out without a passport, and B, doesn't get stopped. It, was there is is there a broken system here, Ed, or is this there, there's speculation and talk is that Tamerlev was a high level uh, source, maybe for the FBI, maybe for somebody else? So no one has told me that that's the case. I, I'm not. I can't. I would certainly never say it couldn't be. Anything can be the case. I I, I pursued this and and and, and talked to uh, uh, federal authorities on how that could happen. And the explanation I got was that um, they had misspelled his name, and it didn't hit on the uh, on the watch list. Um, you know, I, I at that time I knew that the members of Congress were focused on this and were pursuing it through hearings. Uh, the Inspector General's Office of uh, Justice and DHS um, had talked to me; uh, they were looking into it. So. I, um, I I just took that explanation at face value and and uh, hoped that the people that that actually were charged with the responsibility to to find out what happened here would uh, would sufficiently um, report out on that. I haven't heard anything beyond the fact that yeah we spelled the name wrong. You can't tell me it's to to defeat a sophisticated system. We spent billions of dollar building that all it takes is to alter your last name and you can defeat the system. Right. Yeah. I mean, when you're doing ancestral um, research, there there are sound-alike systems that you can use when you, you don't have a, a name. I, I, I don't understand it either. But you're being quite diplomatic, Ed, which is the politician in you coming out. <laughs> so we promise not to, you know, we're, we're done beating this. Up. We don't want to beat the dead horse. I mean, we're done with this because what we want to do is set the stage because he comes back in January um, – uh, January 2012, he leaves. February 6th, though, of 2013, he he's come back into the country at some point later, and this is when the preparations start for for building the bomb. And there's a couple things I want to talk about. It. There's been a lot of uh, information that says there's an Al Qaeda magazine called Inspire that actually used to be physically published out of a place in North Carolina, but the website had a recipe for how to make your own, basically a do-it-yourself pressure cooker bomb. And some of the information said it was supposed to come out of this, but in any event, he's got to start buying 
uh, these basically mortars, and we say mortars from a fireworks standpoint, eight pounds of black powder um, explosives out of Seabrook, New Hampshire, just not too far north of there, right? So we've got black powder now, right? And then um, they also have, they get two nine millimeter handguns. You know, they go out and practice to the range. But here, Ed, here's the one thing I don't understand. This is April 14th now. They build this bomb, they test, or they build it for some reason, but they don't get, at least the information I have, and tell me if it's wrong. It says that they don't receive until April 14th by mail the electronic components to be used in making the IEDs. Uh, he had ordered them over the internet. Was that, inf- is that information correct? I, I I am not aware of that particular fact. I I know that they got the bombs put together faster than they thought they would, and uh, they had originally targeted the July Fourth uh, event on the Esplanade uh, for for the attack. Uh, but they had the bombs assembled earlier. And they looked at the calendar and saw that this was an event uh, that they could pick. And that's that. That's the only information I have as to when the, you know, ATF took care of the, that investigation. And I was never briefed in on uh, those details. Yeah, because I am not, well, uh, just just being a cop too, you, you always, you look at stuff and you go, you, you have to follow the facts, right? You, you just can't, you can't go on emotion, you follow the facts, but... One of the facts is, unless this guy got some sophisticated training, which is Tamerlan, because he's the only one that really traveled, Jokar is not the brightest bulb in the closet when it comes to doing this stuff. But I can't see that these two kids did all of this in and of themselves. Just even at this point, April 14th, you're going, really? These two are able to travel and do stuff like they did? And where did did they build it? Where did they test it? Does anybody know? know, The... The, the the theory that they did it uh, in the in Tamerlan's kitchen uh, is one thing. There was some evidence of black powder uh, in the um, in the drain there, uh, but it doesn't account for this very sophisticated device. Uh, there's been no indication that they tested it anywhere, and I've you know I've done technical work in the past, and and I know how difficult it is to um, to, to to find a. Uh, an appearance point uh, of, a, of, a, of an electrical circuit. I know how difficult it is to solder into something in that works. Uh, when you when you add radio frequency detonators into the equation, it's not only extremely complicated; it's extremely dangerous. And a lot of times, you know, I've been to some bomb making factories where people have blown themselves up, and that's what you would expect in a case like this. These were very sophisticated devices; they work flawlessly. Um, and I can tell you that's not done easily. So I was of the school that, um, the, 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 you know, that these things were either built by somebody else and provided to these young men, or at least, uh, these young men received very, very intense training, uh, possibly when, 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 uh, Tamalin, uh, went to Dagestan. Yeah. Cause now we're leading up to April 15th, Patriots day, of uh, 2013, where are you at during that day before the afternoon? What does your schedule look like? What kind of things are you doing? Well, that was the big uh, the big issue on the agenda. Um, I, I, I uh, woke up early. I went to the event. Um, we we made sure that everybody had had uh, cleared it. The the governor uh, he came in and, and left. Uh, the other big event that I had that day was a call with the White House. So I um, I left the. Um, I left the race course after the elite runners had come across and the governor had come and gone uh, to go home to take a uh, two o'clock call 
with then Vice President Joe Biden and uh, four or five of my colleagues uh, to talk about the uh, firearm legislation, the assault weapon ban. Now, were you still living in Lowell? Did you ever move to Boston or did you stay in Lowell? No, I was in Boston. I, I lived in Hyde Park at that point in time, about 10 to 15 minutes away from the race course. All right. Um, I'm going to play something for you. Uh, this is an experiment we've tried. Steve and I have worked on it. I want to play something for you and, and ask you what you think about this. Listen to this. That goes on for a little bit more, but Ed, that I was able to find some radio traffic. I mean, just so people understand, and Steve and I were listening to this before, it's it still to this day, just for me, gives me goosebumps, makes the hair on the back of my head you know, and neck stand up. Describe for us, I know you were traveling down there, but, but you, know, you had guys on the scene, guys and girls and, and women, all sorts of people. What was that initial chaos like? That bomb, that first bomb goes off um, at... Uh, uh, 2.49 p.m. in front of Marathon Sports, and then about 12 seconds later, the second bomb uh, is blown up in front of the Forum restaurant. Uh, the one at 2.49 kills uh, Christy Marie Campbell, and then the second one kills uh, Lingzi Liu and Martin Richard. So tell us about the chaos, how you got the call, how you found out about it. What, what did you do after hearing about it? Well, I had just hung up the phone with the White House, and, and the phone started to ring almost immediately, and I thought maybe they were there was something wrong with the connection. I was expecting to hear the, the meeting again, so I, I went back on and listened for a second, but it wasn't the White House. It was Dan uh, Linsky, who was my chief of department, and Danny said, Commissioner, we've had two explosions at the finish line. You better get down here. And I said, okay, Danny, what kind of explosions? And the reason I asked that is because we've had electrical explosions in that area before, and, and that's what I thought it might be. I was hoping it would be that. Um, he said, it's not, it's not electrical commissioner um, Danny Keeler, and, and Danny Keeler is the 984 that you were listening to. He said, Danny Keeler is... Um, talking about multiple amputations, and he's screaming for all the ambulances he can get. So Danny's one of our most experienced homicide guys, and screaming is not something that I, I would normally attribute to him. So I immediately thought it was pretty bad. Um, ran downstairs. My driver was still outside. Uh, I got in the car, and we started to race towards the uh, towards the event. He had the radio on, and he could hear it. Um and as we went, I called three people. And the reason I called these three people is because 
I had spent time with the plan. It was a 60 or so page plan that was put together by our special events uh, group. And it had touched on, you know, the JTTF and the intelligence coming in from uh, from our fusion center. And I, I can remember reading in the first page, there's no known threat against the marathon. And, um, and I also knew that the state police and the FBI uh, had uh, SWAT assets that we could uh, that we could utilize uh, that were actually not at the scene but uh, activated and standing by. So the first one I called was Rick Delorier, uh, who was the SAC from the FBI. Now I called Rick because we knew each other. We had each other's cell phone number, and uh, I needed help. And all I could think of was Mumbai and follow on attacks. So I very quickly formed the opinion that this may have been a terrorist attack, and we had to, we had to respond like that. Um, I got Rick, and I said, Rick, I don't know what we've got, but we've had two explosions at the finish line. I need your uh, I need your SWAT team on Ring Road right away. Now, Ring Road was a was a rally point, the place that a staging area that was fairly close to everything, uh, and I just picked that out of the air because I knew the area. So. You know, unlike when you usually call the federal government for something and you, they send you a questionnaire, uh, uh, Rick uh, Rick basically said, all right, Eddie, I'll, we'll be right there. I, I, everybody's on the way. I'll see you on Ring Road. Uh, I hung up with him. I called Tim Albans, who was a colonel of the state police, and I told him the same thing. I need your uh, stop team immediately over at, uh, at Ring Road. Uh, we've got an explosion. And Tim said the same thing. We're on the way. So now I had extra resources heading in that heading towards that location. And the third person I called was Mayor Menino. And I said, Mayor, I, I know we've had explosions. Uh, I don't know what I've got. He was in the hospital at the time. Um, I said, I'm on my way to the scene, and I'll call you from the scene and, um, and fill you in as soon as I can. He said, all right. So I, uh, I headed down there, and when I got to the Northeastern Station by Ruggles Square um, on Huntington Avenue, I saw these two people step off the train, a man and a woman, and they were both crying, and they embraced each other. And I thought to myself, shit, that looks like 9-11, the, the stuff that I saw, you know, in New York. So I thought we might be in for a bad one here. I didn't realize how bad it was at that point in time. Um, I got to the scene, and, and coincidentally, Ring Road, at the very end of Ring Road, is the Forum Restaurant. So where I was calling the SWAT team to respond and where I went to stage myself happened to be at the seat of the second blast. Uh, we drove down the end of Ring Road. I stepped out onto Boylston Street, and as I stepped out, I could feel shrapnel under my feet. And so as soon as as soon as I looked down and saw what that was, I realized that these were anti-personnel devices. So I, I, I knew at that point in time we'd been attacked. Um, How long did it take you to get from your house at Hyde Park to the scene? How long? Yeah. Yeah, about 10 minutes, lights and siren. Yeah. Okay. Um, the, the ambulances were still on, on scene. They were still leaving. Um, I... I um, I walked across the street and I saw the bodies of uh, Lindsay Lou and Martin Richard on the ground at the uh, at the second bombing site, and so I knew that not only we had bad injuries, but we also had bodies, and um, this was going to be an international incident. 
And, you know, I paused a second because I thought to myself, you know, I understand the ramifications of this. And um, and so I, I thought, all right, what do I do now? Um, but I remembered thinking we we had a great plan. We, we, we had spent time on this. Uh, we didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, we should have stopped it, but we didn't. And now it was really important to urgently pursue the people responsible for this and uh, get them wrapped up. Ed, hold on for a second. You said we should have stopped this. Under You had no threat intelligence. The information about the Sarnayevs had not been given to you. It wasn't in the fusion center. Uh, I don't want to, you know you know, call you out on something, but it's like, but how could you have possibly stopped this, you know, with thousands and thousands of people down there? There, there was zero threat intelligence to say somebody was going to blow up two pressure cooker bombs that day. Right. And and I'm not trying to be dramatic here. I, I, I just think that it's our responsibility to stop anything that, that might happen like this. And, uh, and, and so in some ways, when you don't stop it, it's a failure, even if it's explainable. So this was an explainable failure, but a failure nonetheless. And it was exacerbated by the fact that we we did have information on these guys that wasn't shared with us. Now, we were working a terrorist case the year before that. And on July 4th, uh, the terrorist who was planning on, he's since been arrested and prosecuted, so I can talk about it, but at the time it was top secret. The, the terrorist was planning on flying a drone into the Pentagon. And um, we had been negotiating with him and FBI undercovers, and it was, a, it was an active federal case. Um, we made a decision to follow him on July 4th because we had all of these events in downtown Boston and we were afraid that he might change his plans. Um, so that's exactly what we would have done had we known that these two guys were a threat, but we didn't. So it was a missed opportunity, but, but, you know, and I still take that very seriously that, that we weren't able to stop the, the, the terrible, uh, loss that we had, uh, of, uh, you know, not only the, uh, the, the you know the victims the, the four victims five victims ultimately right. and that were killed and then um, and then the 17 people that lost limbs um, that really were changed for the rest of their lives this was a this was a very effective attack and they got bias so you know I still I still feel uh, I still feel bad about that but we did what we could do at that point in time and I think it was due to the plan I, I think that if I hadn't had that plan in place and I hadn't done the things uh, we hadn't done the things as an organization leading up to it uh, I would have been pretty much incapacitated I think at that point in time yeah, no, no, no. The, the, the plans are, you know, uh, the other thing, too, is Eisenhower said one time, I think, talking about D-Day, said plans are worth this, but planning is invaluable. And you guys were continuously planning. You were doing continuous planning. You know, threats right. would change. New things would change. Right. But but while you're down there, um, you know, one of the things I thought was it, it probably because of the way the, the uh, marathon is set up and where all the help was, you hate to say if there's a place for the bomb to go off. You know, it needs to be at a certain place. But if a bomb was going to go off, the fact that it was close to the end of the race where all the ambulances were and the helps, I'm going to give people a stat here. And then I want you to talk about that. What they talked about was that um, it had taken uh, there were 264 critically injured patients, 17 who suffered traumatic injuries, but it only took 22 minutes 
to get everybody to clear the Boylston Street area after the bombings and get people to the... I mean, if that's not an incredible fucking number, right. just think of the number. You got that area cleared in 22 minutes. Right. How? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was... There were a couple of things that came into play. Good planning. Uh, we had we had engaged the emergency rooms in uh, mass casualty event planning beforehand. Uh, a year before this, we had done a mass casualty event or uh, terrorist attack of, event um, with with our SWAT teams and all the medical people. So we were well trained in what to do. Um, and then there was uh, Colum Leiden. You know, Colum was one of my deputies. And um, as I, before, I even went to the first bomb. Column, column stopped me as I as I was heading down the street to see the the, the bomb seat of the first bomb, and uh, he said, "Commissioner, I think I screwed up." And I said, "Why? What's the matter? We'll figure it out. What 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 happened?" And he said, "Well, there were people critically injured, and we had run out of ambulances." I said, "Yeah." He said, so I called uh, the patrol wagons and I had them transport critically injured people to the emergency room. Now, that goes against our policies. And he realized that he knew that he had violated policy. And I said to him, listen, don't worry about it. We'll work through it at the end. OK, no, just hang in there. Uh, but in talking to the emergency room docs later on, if he had not cleared several of those people out with patrol wa uh, wagons, they would have bled to death at the scene. So, you know, there was improv there was improvisation as well as good planning and, and good decisions made by people that were experienced and knew what to do. You also had a lot of folks that were former military trained, uh, a lot of folks. And the one thing I thought was um, interesting to note about this was the aggressive use of tourniquets. A lot of people used to think tourniquets should be the last thing, but but because of prior military training or because of protocols that they've learned from other stuff, getting that tourniquet on there, the aggressive use of tourniquet probably saved a lot of lives too, didn't it? Yes, there's no question about it. There were tourniquets available in the um, in the ambulances. Uh, people used them extensively. People fashioned them, uh, especially people uh, with uh, police and uh, and military experience, uh, and they definitely saved lives. Uh, Dr. Alexander Eastman from the Dallas uh, Police in an emergency room out there in Dallas, and I became friendly after this. Um, he's been on a uh, on a mission to get every police officer. Um, as part of their uniform, a uh, uh, you know a tourniquet, and uh, he's done a great job. He he actually worked on the uh, Newtown uh, incident, and, and you know has been a big advocate for tourniquets. So now everybody everybody in the Boston Police Department carries them. Well, I'll tell you, with my own rig that I have, you know, I'm, I, you know, not in the game officially anymore, but I've got a ballistic vest, I've got a plate, and I've got my med kit, and I, right on that carrier that I have for my uh, Kevlar and my plate, right on there is, I got a tourniquet there, I also have a tourniquet in my med kit bag, too. Just like you say, it's just got to be standard stuff. Right. You know, Steve, is, I want to bring Steve into this, too, Steve, because this reminds me, too, that, you know, talk to, the, uh, talk to Ed, too, about, we talked about... Um, the the Centro 93 bombing, and you were down there in Colombia when that happened. This almost sounds eerily like what Pablo pulled, you know, with bombing innocent citizens down there. Same kind of thing. It was. It was It was to send a message to the Cali cartel. But, you know, the, the sad part of all this is, you know, if criminals want to kill each other, I, honestly, I don't have a problem with that. But when you involve innocent people who happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, 
you know, Javier and I responded down there afterwards, just like you did. We couldn't get as close as you did because we didn't have the lights and siren. But as you're walking in, as you're driving in, you see the smoke in the distance. And then as you get closer, you hear the sirens. And then when you get out and you start approaching on foot, you start hearing moaning and wailing and people screaming for help. And it, it just, it's almost overwhelming. And then, I mean, you know, just to get graphic for a second, just to, to relate to people that never see this kind of thing or are never exposed to it, you start to see body parts, you know, and then the closer you get, the worse it gets. You know, you see the proverbial policeman, fireman carrying the lifeless body of a small child. It's it's things that just stick with you the rest of your life. It it Every time it renews your resolve to do your job because it's, you know, Law enforcement doesn't take it lightly. You know, you can tell, just listen to your stories, Ed. You get a little more uh, forceful in your discussion here as you're talking about it. And you can tell it still has an effect on you all these years later. I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, 2013. Yeah. And here we are in 21, and it's, it, it just never goes away. No, it doesn't. Walk through your next set of actions. You're down there, like you said, you feel the shrapnel underneath your feet. You've got the plan in place. Let me ask you, on that plan, was any of it, did you guys ever game out the fact that you might have a bomb or two go off at the finish line uh, during the marathon? Or was that one of the scenarios no. considered? No, we had never, we had never, pl- I mean, the, the marathon had a, um, a contingency plan for a second finish line, right? So they had it all measured out, uh, if something were to happen in, the, in that area, whether it be a bomb or some other incident that occurred, uh, they could still finish the race on Beacon Street as opposed to Boylston Street, where where they usually come down. So that that area was already set up, but uh, this was such a devastating attack, and it was unknown whether there'd be follow-on attacks. So the the race was simply stopped, and and everyone was dispersed. What? You talked about the follow-on attacks. There was another reported explosion that you guys were very concerned about. Talk about that. Yeah, well, we had set up a command post and got word almost immediately as we were in the ballroom of, of the hotel that uh, that fire was responding to a very nasty fire at the JFK library. So uh, we assumed that that was a follow-on attack. We, spent the, we sent uh, SWAT members over there uh, to try to understand what happened and to get witnesses. Um, the fire department couldn't knock the uh, fire down with a regular pumper truck. They had to bring in a, a water cannon like you'd see in an airplane uh, incident. So we thought that there was, um, you know, it was a good indication that there were either explosives or uh, highly flammable uh, um uh, substances involved. Um, after a while, uh, it probably took an hour or so, but the fire department knocked the fire down, get in and looked at it. And it was an electrical fire that had caught some aluminum. Uh, it, it was part of the uh, structure of the building on fire. And once the aluminum started to burn, it got very nasty. So it was, it was a natural causes thing, but it took resources away for uh, for a good hour while we, uh, we uh, ran that to ground. Yeah, well, thank God it wasn't because, like you say, you know that the more scenes you have to work and the more things you have to do, the more your resources get split up. Walk us through now. You're down there. You're taking command. How does this? How does this event unfold during the first few hours after the explosions? You're transporting people, and obviously, one of the biggest things has got to be you talk first about remember the, the lessons of London about the use of video. 
you know, and mm. pictures. And then you're also, the thing is, all right, who, who are the sons of bitches who did this? So what, what happens next? Well, um, after I talked to Cullum, I ran down the street to the uh, site of the first explosion, and uh, I noticed the damage there it went up three stories. The damage in the first explosion went up two stories. This, this was a more powerful bomb from what I could see. Um, the, the amount of blood at that scene was horrendous. I'd never seen the volume of blood that I saw on the ground, so I thought we'd have a lot more fatalities. Uh, luckily, the, the 12 people that left the scene that were, you know, on life support at that point in time were uh, were all saved. They all got to the hospital and were uh, were uh, saved and recovered eventually. A lot of them had amputations, but uh, it was a it was a very very difficult medical challenge. Um, I looked at that scene. Um, they had already removed the body of Crystal Campbell. Uh, turns out Crystal was a waitress for us. My, I brought my staff out to one of the islands in Boston Harbor for uh, the summer before, and uh, and Crystal had waited on us. So it became a very personal attack uh, very quickly. I turned around, and uh, there was an ATF agent there with this jacket on. I don't know where he came from. I don't know that there were any assigned to the event, but he showed up really quickly. And he said, Commissioner, look at this. And I walked over, and there was a piece of circuit board on the ground, large piece of circuit board, uh, probably four by six inches. And he said, check that out. So I looked at it, and in the middle of the circuit board, uh, there was a wire that was roughly soldered to a contact point in the circuit board. And he said, I think that's a detonator. Uh, and I and I said, yeah, you know, it, it, it clearly someone had messed with that circuit. Something was going on there. Um, as it turned out, that was a detonator. It was uh, one of the pieces of the... Uh, of the remote control car that they use to uh, to to uh, set off these uh, these devices. Um, I started to walk back to to Ring Road where all my uh, team was assembling, and I ran into Sergeant Chris Conley. And Chris was on his ground on on his hands and knees in the middle of Boylston Street, and he's wearing nothing but BDUs. He he doesn't have any protective equipment on. Uh, Chris, I know to be the uh, the head of the bomb squad. Um, and he's cutting into a, he's got a razor knife and he's cutting into a backpack. And I said, Chris, what are you doing? And he said, commissioner, I'm trying to clear the, the, uh, course here, uh, for responding people. In other words, there's always follow-on attacks, or, or they're frequently follow-on attacks. And, and what I had, hadn't prepared for, and I remember when I went to Singapore, this became a big issue for them. They hadn't thought of it either. Uh, people drop their bags when they run. You know, when they're really afraid, they just drop everything and run like hell. And so the whole race course was strewn with empty, you know, um, backpacks and, and purses and things like that. And so Chris's job really was to, to, to do what he called uh, something the Israelis taught him, which is uh, slash and tag. Uh, cut into the bag, make sure there's no explosives in it, and then tag it so that you know it's clear and you can safely work in that area. But when you think about it, he was risking his life uh, doing that um, just to protect the other officers. So I thought that was remarkable. Anyway, I walked up to uh, Ring Road, and um, I... Um, I, the first thing I did was uh, talk to uh, Lieutenant Earl Perkins. Now, Earl worked in a fusion center, and his job was to recover video at homicide scenes. That was one of the main functions he was performing at that time. And I said, listen, come here. I want you to grab a trooper and an FBI agent, and I want you to hit every restaurant 
every store, everything around here, and start to download the uh, the uh, you know the video information that we have. That's going to solve the case. And he said, "On a commissioner," and he went out and started to do that. Um, and and I'm happy to say that one of the first downloads they did was at the Forum Restaurant, which really was the video that identified uh, Tamalin and uh, Joka. You know, Ed, go ahead. Yeah, that's that's a point though. I, I want to kind of emphasize you had that video on the day that this happened right but it took but where did that video go did that stay with you or did that go to the fbi for analysis oh you heard the story uh, uh well we do we do a little bit <laughs> you of do your homework here you do your homework. trying criminal investigators <laughs> exactly so um we started to collect video and um by that time at about 7 50 or so that afternoon the fbi had taken over the case so and we Ed, were... stop there for a second because i you brought up something yeah. i want folks to understand one other clear distinction too this was being worked involving terrorism but there was an issue if you declared it an act of terrorism right you guys were very careful about the wording why was that and i didn't mean to interrupt you but i thought this no, was so important to understanding why words mean things even in, in big investigations like this right well we i found out later that uh if something is designated a uh, a terrorist event um a lot of insurance policies will not cover any damage that's, that occurs as a result of it. Not only losses from the explosion, but financial losses afterwards. There's a lot of people that have business insurance. If um, if that's the designation, then you don't get your uh, coverage. So political officials are very, very uh, hesitant to, to declare something like that um, and hurt people that, that would normally be covered by the insurance. Wow. Wow. I never knew that till you told us that during our pre-call. I knew yeah. about floods. You know, you look in floodplains or certain stuff, but I never knew that, yeah, about the terrorism stuff. Because now it victimizes them all over again. They, they didn't set the bomb off, and now they don't get coverage. But, you know, we were talking now, so about 7 o'clock that night, the FBI comes in. And you had mentioned, too, before, is that there's always this hesitation sometimes. Well, the feds came in and take over. But like you told us earlier, you really actually welcomed the FBI to come in and head this up. What happened? Why were you so glad to have them? on board and what happened starting at seven o'clock that night and we started talking about the evidence here yeah well a few things uh one is that this is a massive undertaking uh, i had a city to police of uh you know six hundred and fifty thousand people 50 square miles uh we were taking calls uh we had the largest crime scene that we had ever processed that was like 20 blocks long it had to be secured uh 24 7. um we we had a, a significant number of people engaged in the pursuit of these two uh, bad guys um and so the first federal official that stepped up was the general from uh, the National Guard. And he said, Eddie, I, I, I knew him, he was a tremendous guy. Uh, I'd worked with him on a bunch of different things. And he said, do you, uh, do you need any troops? And I said, yeah, how many can you get me? And he said, I can have, I think it was 1,800. It was around 2,000. I can have them here by 7 o'clock tonight. And I started thinking about it. Now, you know, it's it's kind of a big deal to call military into your city, but I had those all those responsibilities, and I said, yeah, uh, you know, general, let's let's get them here. So uh, uh, so he brought them in, and um, and they and they were the ones that secured the uh, 
the crime scene for us so that we could we could go on to other things. But the bottom line was, it was pretty clear to me right after I stepped on the ground that this was a terrorist attack. That's the only thing I could, I mean, it certainly wasn't organized crime. It wasn't uh, some bad guy that, uh, that, that I could see. And the reason I thought that is because it really required two people to set off two bombs at that mm-hmm. distance away from each other. Uh, so I knew that there was a conspiracy. Um, and um, and I thought, you know, I, I'm certainly familiar with the legislation after 9-11, so I know it would go their way eventually. Uh, but they had to have internal debates and, and conversations with the uh, attorney general. Uh, Eric Holder called me uh, in the command post. Uh, Bob Mueller, the, uh, Eric Holder was the attorney general. Uh, Bob Mueller was the, uh, the uh, FBI director. Um, the the vice president called back joe biden called me personally and uh you know said i can't believe this happened right after we were talking and we had that conversation and then president uh, obama called uh, called the mayor so um the federal government responded very quickly but the point about the fbi is that you know i was i was looking for all the help i could get i, I was happy they, they they stepped up because i thought it was their responsibility legislate you know not legislatively but um Basically, legally, by statute, that they were supposed to lead terrorist investigations. Right. Yeah. So it was just I, I expected it to happen, um, but when they when they did uh, pick it up, all the evidence started to go to the FBI. So uh, we had collected d- two days worth of uh, video information um, and didn't have any capacity to look at it other than here and there. You know, we had a we had one computer station set up at the police department, but now the stuff was going to the FBI. So you know, we sent it to them. Um, and they actually flew it down to Quantico. And then, you know, I had, when they did, when they were doing that, my, you know, how you, ch- you have check mark, check offs or checklists in your head and you say, okay, checklist, FBI's handling that. We should know soon. Um, what I didn't know was they didn't have any capacity to look at video either. So, um, they turned the plane around and flew the stuff back and they said, you guys are going to have to take care of this. So it was at that point that we teamed up with them and set up uh, Black Falcon Terminal as a, um, it was a, it was already an evidence catchment site. We were laying out uh, evidence there, just like you would in a plane crash of, of where different things were found at the scene. And then uh, we started to set up uh, these computer stations that could handle video. We had two or three of them the first couple of days. Eventually, there were like a dozen of them that were going around the clock uh, processing uh, the information. So it took a couple of days of the of the video being shipped to Washington, shipped back, and then uh, being um, reviewed at the uh, at the Black Falcon facility before I got the call on Wednesday uh, from Rick Delorier and my uh, my uh, representative at the task force that they had found a picture of the guy and I should get right over to FBI headquarters. Say say that again. They had found a picture of the guy. This was on the the Monday. Or, no, no, it was Wednesday or Thursday. Oh, okay. uh, Wednesday. What day did the, the uh, vice the president arrived? On well, the FBI Thursday. puts out the press conference on Wednesday at five p.m. Yeah, so, so it, it was Wednesday morning. Day. Okay. Um, no, it would have been Tuesday. No, no, no. There's something wrong with the, the timeline there. The press conference that showed the video was Thursday, wasn't it? Let's see, April 18th. Oh, that's right. Thursday at 5 p.m. Yeah, because yeah, that's, yeah, so, that's the night. Yeah. yeah, you're right. So it was Wednesday morning uh, that the president uh, came. And uh, and then um, I left the presidential motorcade and kind of shot around them and came over to the FBI. That's when I saw the pictures of Tamalin and, and Joe Carr. Um, 
And then later on in that day, uh, we had a meeting with the FBI and had an argument about releasing the the pictures. Um, Thursday morning, Rick called back and said, "You're right. We're going to do that." And but then, uh, go back though. Go back to though. You you wanted them, quite frankly, and even in your testimony, you said you wanted those because you testified before the House and the Senate. You actually wanted those released 24 hours before the FBI eventually did. Right. Right. And so, I mean, I get the detectives. I had my own detectives thinking that they could uh, that they could find these guys, you know, just give us the pictures and we'll go out and work the community and find them. Um, but I I was uh, I was of a different mindset because I've been very much an advocate of getting the community involved in things uh, from the get go. And so um, when I first got to Boston, I had a fight with people to get video of homicides out. And a little while later, after it started to work, they started to do it more often. So I ran into the same problem here. Is you had a bunch of detectives saying, no, 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 give this to us, we'll find them. Uh, but I had a different perspective on it. And I had a different perspective because every few hours I was having a conversation with the mayor, um, with the Red Sox, with the Bruins. I mean, all of these sports venues wanted to reopen. And at one point we said, yeah, go ahead. But now I'm sitting on a picture of the bad guy, and I know that night the Red Sox, are, or that afternoon the Red Sox are going to play. What if these guys built another bomb and brought it into the Red Sox game, and I hadn't released the picture? Right? I knew that I'd be on the hook for that, and I I was adamantly uh, advocating to get these pictures out, and um, and I didn't have any support among the law enforcement community from the United States Attorney down to the you know to through the state police and uh, to our guys. Um, I was the only one pushing to let it out, and I, uh, I I basically said, listen, I want the name of the, they blamed it on an assistant attorney general, and I said, I want his name, and they gave it to me, and they said, why? This was at a meeting of all the police officials, FBI from Washington and our guys, and, and I said, I'll tell you why, because I want these pitches released, and if you don't release them, and something happens at the Red Sox game tonight, I'm going to go on television and say that it was Assistant Attorney General so-and-so's fault. And um, and so, you know, there was silence at the table. Um, and to his credit, um, the next morning, very early in the morning, 4.30, 5 o'clock, Rick Deloria called me and he said, Eddie, I've been thinking all night about what you just said, and you're right, we're going to get these pitches out today. And and he was, he was good to his word. So it took a little while, but... But the right thing happened. But, but now, you know, Ed, what this room? Go ahead, sorry, Strife. Go ahead. I was going to say, let's. Uh, so, the sporting events have been shut down. What, what's the atmosphere? What actions did you take to protect the public immediately after the bombing? Just if you could explain that a little bit, and I think that'll tie into what you, the story you just told there. Yeah. Well, we locked um, we locked everything down around the crime scene. Um, you know, there were. It was it was one of those times in Boston where you couldn't go anywhere without blue lights and siren running everywhere. It was five days of that. Every everywhere we went was code three, you know, um, and and um, the, 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 we were inundated with media. I'd never seen anything like it. There were literally hundreds of uh, cameras and 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 reporters at the press conference right after the explosions. I don't know where they all came from. They were from all over the world. I. I, I, it was it was a it was a, sh- a shocking development, um, but we 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 told the, we told the community that we were looking for these guys, and they um, they responded. And after the shootout started, um, and we had to lock the city down, I was shocked that everybody, in fact, did what we asked them to do, which was stay home. 
And when now that so the the actual lockdown of the metropolitan Boston area didn't happen until when? Until uh, the sh- the shooting incident happened on Thursday night, and Friday morning we locked down the city. Okay, okay, and we're we haven't gotten that far yet, so we'll. What I was going to just make a commentary on, you know what else this reminds me of, Ed? Of another very famous case where people said, release the information, release the information, and the government, the FBI said, no, 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 was the Unabomber. They had his manifesto. And had they not released the information, his brother never would have seen it. I believe it was the New York Times. And would have that was the lead that led to identifying Ted Kaczynski was by David Kaczynski, his own brother, that says, I recognize his writing. I mean, to your, it validates your point, which is, if you truly believe in community policing, which you did, the police are the public and the public are the police. Get the public involved. And I'll tell you what pisses me off a little bit about this, not the, not the feds. It's the fact is that when these pictures were out there, there were so many people that knew Tamerlan and Jokar, and nobody came forward to say, I know these dudes. Right. If they had, Sean Collier would still be alive. Um, when they released those pictures, I thought we'd be locking these guys up in a couple of hours. And it didn't happen. It went overnight. And and then Sean was killed. We're going to talk about that in a second too, because that leads up into you know you, this. The bombing happens on Monday, Tuesday. I mean, you're just sifting obviously through tons and tons of uh, evidence and and doing this stuff. Wednesday comes. That's when you have the big discussion with uh, you identify them. You know that they are that the that and they they term them black hat and white hat, right? Why did they do that? Right. Uh, simply because um, I, I was there when we first started to use those phrases. Um, it was it was uh, Joka that we first identified because he was standing right where the bomb was, and they saw him put the bag down, so they knew he was involved. Um, but a little earlier than that, he was walking maybe five or six paces behind his brother, and they were walking in the, at the same rate of speed. They were both dressed similarly, both with backpacks on, and um, they both had uh, hats, one a black hat, one a white hat, pulled down over their face. And um, I, I, when I, when I, the second time I saw the film, I said, has anybody looked at the guy in the black hat yet? And they said, no, he's, you know, we don't have him holding anything. I said, I don't know. I don't like him. You know, he looks like it's the same cadence, like they're together. And they were like, yeah, well, we're going to look into that. Now, I'm not, you know, a few hours later, they had him at the other place. They had to, they had to get the evidence on it. And a few hours later, they had him at the other site, and they knew he was probably involved in it. But um, we started, at that point in time, we started to refer to the guy in the black hat and the guy in the white hat. And then we, it just became shorthand, black hat, white hat. You know, and Ed, the other thing that impacted this, because I remember following this very closely, looking at what was going on, it was all of these folks that meant well, but really screwed things up. The people who got on these internet forums and they started saying, oh, yeah. oh we found this guy with a, look at the outline of the backpack, it's got a pressure cutter. That actually diverted critical resources and time away from actually finding the guys. Talk a little bit about what the impact was of these well-meaning but misguided internet sleuths who thought, hey, we're going to solve this on our own. Well, I mean, I think the biggest problem was the New York Post publishing pictures that were that were sent to them uh, through that process of uh, a guy with a white hat on that had absolutely nothing to do with it. They they published this picture and said this is one of the bombers. We had to put him under police protection. He showed up at the he showed up at a district precinct precinct in East Boston. He thought he said I'm going to be killed. 
So we had to cover them, and the Post paid dearly for that mistake, you know. Uh, so there was that there was that incident. But the other one was not only just good-meaning people that were doing it wrong, but uh, there were people that actually photoshopped a, a satchel bomb or a sa- like a sack in front of where the actual bomb went off. So there was a picture, a video scan of Boylston Street, and they showed it to me. And there, there's a there's a bag with handles on it. On, on the race course side of the uh, of the bicycle rack, and I said, I, I, "That can't. That, there's cops right there. Right? Danny Keeler was here. Um, Tommy was over here. There's there's no way somebody could have dropped that down there, and the guys wouldn't have approached it. And nobody said anything about that. So as it turned out, it, when we finally did an analysis of that photograph, it was uh, photoshopped." into the thing. It, it, it never existed. So somebody was making evidence up. There was another guy that showed a shadowy figure on the rooftop just above the Forum restaurant. And, um, it, you know, we looked at it. It was After you looked at it a couple of times, it clearly was something that had been added. But those kind of those kind of things that are put out on the internet end up in the investigator's purview and take them away from the real information that's out there, you know? So it's very, very dangerous. It's not, there's nothing funny about it. Well, yeah, it's and a bunch of morons out there. Well, it's yeah. the same conspiracy theorists, and, and I use that specifically for the people who claim, like, 9-11, this is a false flag operation. This was done by our own government. This was done. How many times did you hear that during this investigation, Ed? Yeah, no, that, that, that it, it's it's insanity. It's absolute insanity. Well, let's roll forward because there's um, we start talking. Thursday becomes. I mean, there's a lot of activity going right, but Thursday is when things really start coming to a head at 5 p.m. I remember, I can't tell you what the ratings were, but I'm sure I can tell you how many millions of eyeballs were glued to that TV set, right? right. Tell us about the process getting to that, of, of, of putting the pictures up there and feeling confident that these are black hat, white hat, are our guys. I mean, you felt that way 24 hours before. Yeah. I know the FBI had to come full circle, but what's the process to finally putting that poster board up there and having that press conference? Well, there was a lot of discussion in Washington before it was authorized, but finally people realized it was the right thing to do. So uh, they had, you know, they had a, a poster board um, that was uh, developed at the bureau with really good pictures of them. Rick Delorier ran the press conference. Uh, all of the partners were there at, at a hotel in the back bay, and um, and we had uh, again hundreds of media. Um, we had one moron that was sitting in the media pool who was a self-described um internet reporter um and and he he wasn't affiliated with any legitimate news media outlet he was just crazy and and you know we would we're trying to get across some very serious situations and this guy was asking us about all that false flag stuff you know that you mentioned uh uh, so it was very much a distraction, but uh, we got through it, and um, and they started to send the information out. And I had slept maybe two to three hours a night for four nights, and um, I went home after that press conference and crashed. I I, I fell asleep, um, and and um, was totally convinced that we'd have the guys before I woke up. Uh, we didn't have them. We had a police officer murdered, and um, that was the call that I got. Let me play something for you here. We'll do a one and one inbound and outbound. I asked him 
something in the uh, McDermott, in the uh, North Court side there. They said they see an officer sitting uh, out there. Just, they were just curious to what the noises were. Officer Cotel. Got two call one. You can respond to 32 Vassar Street. We've seen reports of an MIT officer down at that location. Nothing further. One copy. Uh, two copies on the way. A medical response. For shots fired at 32 Vassar Street. Shots fired at 32 Vassar. You know, I, I just still, still to this day, I, I can't, you know, and we've all been to cop funerals. And this is just my opinion, but this is a death that entirely could have been prevented. The killing of a police officer, a good kid that was about to take a job with Somerville, which, by the way, the chief up there, uh, Steve actually knows, former DEA guy. I think it was Tom Pascarella, right? He's yep. going to get his job to become and and and. And if the reports are right, right, he's actually, Sean Collier is actually sharing the photos of the suspects before, you know, before this incident happens. He's doing his part. He's sharing the information. And I got to tell you, going to cop funerals, you never want to go to those things. But I'm sitting here thinking about this and going back to your words, which ring now, they, they're, they're eerily prescient, which is, if they had gotten this information out on the 24th, I don't want to do this, well, would it have saved it? But he would have had a hell of a better chance of surviving and being alive right now if that information had been out there 24 hours earlier. Well, uh, you know, hopefully um, someone would have recognized these guys. Uh, we, we did, uh, you know, we did understand that two of their college roommates or, or buddies uh, realized in a, in a couple of hours uh, that it was them. And they actually took... Um, made an effort to conceal evidence that was still at Joe Carr's uh, room, some of the fireworks and things. They, they realized what they were doing, and they were ultimately uh, charged and, and convicted of uh, conspiracy after the fact. Uh, but it's such a needless tragedy, and, um, and uh, my, my, whole, my whole fear was that I would be sitting on these pitches, and not only, you know, somebody going into the Fenway Park, but also... Uh, police, they didn't want to give the information out to police officers. So my guys would be out there without information. It just what it just was potentially stupid. contacting them and talking to them and not knowing that they're dealing with the Boston bombers. Right, right. And, you know, it, it's 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 terrible. It really is. I I I'm just so happy that Sean actually had the picture. It didn't save his life, but if he hadn't had that picture beforehand, I would have felt personally responsible for it. Yeah. So. Tell, but you said you were asleep until you got the call. Tell us about the call. I, I got a call at about 1030 that um, Officer Collier had been killed. And um, I said, and it was the command post that was calling me. And I said to them, um, is, is, this our, is this our guys? Is this, is this the guys we're searching for? And they were very certain. They said, no, there was an armed robbery in Cambridge just before this. And I think uh, what happened is Collier ran into the armed robber and and, uh, and got shot. I said, you're certain about that? And they said, yep. I said, all right. So I rolled over. And my wife was there, and she said, 
What do you mean? A cop? When was the last time a cop was killed in Cambridge? I said, it's been years. I don't, I don't even know when the last time was. She said, so you don't think it was this guy? You know, our guys? And I said, look, they're telling me it was an armed robbery. I, you know, but she was, <laughs> she was a better cop than I was at that particular time. So I fell back to sleep. And then about an hour or so later, um, I got a call again from Dan Linsky. And I picked up the phone and he said, Commissioner, they're shooting at us and throwing bombs. So I sat up, um, having never heard that phrase in police work in my life. And I said, where are you, Danny? He said, we're in Watertown. We're in a shootout with these guys. It's our guys. And uh, and they're throwing bombs at us. Hang on. I, Listen yep. to this. On units, we have shots fired in the vehicle in question from Cambridge. Last in here, he around. to insert that in there but it's like i have never heard that in a radio call before grenades you know and they're throwing explosives at us yeah neither would i and i when i was talking to dan i could hear the gunfire in the background so um nothing in my experience had prepared me for uh, people throwing grenades at us um and, and in the final analysis they were grenades they were uh, two inch uh, steel pipe elbows capped at each end and fused and, you know, the, the EOD guys told me that they, they were about as powerful as a World War II grenade. And and those were the small bombs that were being thrown at them. They had two other pressure cooker bombs uh, that they let loose. And um, it, it, um, it it it's it's unbelievable that that they had built these things in the, in the intervening days from our incident. Um, it's also incredible that if it wasn't because of Danny Ming, the kid that escaped from the car and called the police, um, they would have made it down to New York and, and blown up a, a subway station, which was their intent that night. So let's let's talk about that real quick, because Danny was actually a Chinese national. He was a student over here and he had a Mercedes. Yep. And right. They carjacked him around the same time that that robbery was going on at that gas station. Um, and, uh, they actually bragged to him, right? They bragged to him that, say, we were the ones that did the bombing, not knowing that they had just shot Sean Collier just a little bit before either. Right. Um, well, they told them that, that we blew up the Boston marathon and we shot a cop. Oh, they, okay. Uh, yeah. They, t they told them that, um, they also stuck a, a disc into his, uh, uh, music uh, system and were playing their music, some kind of Islamic kind of, I don't know, 
chanting thing that uh, that was getting, you know, it, it was Danny describes it in detail, and it was um, it was shocking to me that that all of this was going on. Um, he had been sitting by the side of the road in his new uh, in his new um, uh, Mercedes. SUV, Mercedes yeah. SUV, and uh, talking to his parents in China, and uh, he had to hang the phone up because these two guys came up, one of them with a gun, stuck it in his face, and told him to drive. But but talk about Danny's. Uh, even though he's got a language barrier and stuff, his presence of mind. His phone is in there. He leaves his phone in there, but he makes a dash for it. Right when they go into the, uh, I think it was uh, Tamerlan. It goes into the store and Jokar right is in the Civic behind them. Right. Yeah. There's two. There's two gas stations uh, at the corner of uh, Memorial Drive and Mass Ave in Cambridge, and uh, they had driven around for about an hour uh, with Danny, forced him to go to an ATM and withdraw four hundred dollars from his own account. They took his money. They needed gas to get to New York, so they uh, they drove uh, his car into that gas station, and um, they were filling it up. Uh, luckily, the gas they had to pay for the gas inside so the credit card machine didn't work they had to go inside uh, to pay for the uh, for, to pay the for the money for the for the gas that left Danny Ming and Tamerlin in the car together Danny was in the front driver's side uh, the front uh, passenger side and Tamerlin was in the driver's seat and Danny said that Tamerlin had taken the gun and put it into the um, the little space there next to the armrest and was sitting next to him on the left-hand side. And Danny said, I was convinced they were going to murder me. He said, I knew if I didn't get out of the car right now, I wouldn't make it. He said, so I had to practice in my mind what I was going to do. I had to reach up and grab the handle of the car door and open it. I had to press the seatbelt release at the same time. And then I had to roll out onto the ground. And he said, I thought about it and I thought about it. And just before Joe Carr started to come back out, he did it. He executed and uh, pulled the door, hit the switch, rolled out on the ground, and started to run. Tamerlan jumped out of the car and screamed at him, but Danny kept running. He went across Mass Ave into the door of the other gas station, and he threw himself on the ground and started to beg the uh, the gas station attendant to call the police. And uh, he was saying, uh, marathon, bombers, call the police, call the police. They killed a cop. And so luckily, uh, the... the uh, gas station attendant had presence of mind to call. Uh, police arrived there just moments later. Tamalin and Joe Carr had taken off in the uh, Mercedes. Um, and when the cop got there, he said, tell us what he said. You know, Danny said, they, they told me they shot a cop and they killed a cop in Cambridge and they blew up the marathon. And he said, they're in my car. So the cop says, what does your car look like? He says, it's a, you know, Mercedes SUV, blah, 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 brand new. And he said to the cop, the, uh, the, the the ID the G, the GPS ID is one two three four five six seven. So the cop wrote it down and he said to him, "How do you know that the GPS ID is?" And 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 Danny said, "I go to MIT. I remember numbers." He just <laughs> stuck in his mind. Wow. And um, and so they were able to give that to dispatch, and with just a few minutes, uh, they were able to uh, get on start, attract the car, and find it in Watertown. So they give it out to the Watertown police, and um, one of the younger guys, a uh, fairly new guy on the job, was driving down the road and saw the car go by him. And he said the guy was eyeballing me as he went by, 
And after he went by, he said, I swung the car around and I called and I said, well, I've got that car. It was put out as a stolen car, by the way. They, they, nobody said these were suspects in the bombing. They just said, we've got a stolen car. And so the cop thought he was just following a joyrider. Um, but he said they went down around the corner onto uh, one of the side streets and the vehicle just stopped in the middle of the road. And, um, uh, the, the the officer had been advised by his sergeant not to stop the car until the sergeant was present. So the sergeant was going to back him up, and the the officer never lit the uh, the car up. He 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 never turned his lights on. So they they stopped. Be- yeah, they stopped and without having. They the stopped lights and engaged. On. Yep, okay. they stopped and engaged. They just they went around a corner onto a side street. They went about a hundred yards down the street, slammed the brakes on, get out of the car, and opened fire on the officer. And I talked to the officer later that night, and he said my windshield started to blow up. So he rolled out of the car onto the ground, uh, out of the passenger side, um, and then um, he uh, he took cover behind it. <laughs> well, he said it was a tree. It looked like a sapling to me. I'm glad I wasn't taking cover behind it. <laughs> it was probably three inches wide. Um, but he started to to return fire with Tamil, and the Tamil started to fire at him. Uh, the sergeant gets to the scene and uh, gets out of the car, and uh, he 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 sees that. First of all, he comes under fire; he, his windshield gets hit too. So he jumps out of the car and lets it go. He doesn't put it in park; he just lets it roll. And uh, and the cop saw the car rolling towards the bad guys and said, "Wow, the sergeant's bringing the fight to him." He said, then all of a sudden, the sergeant was standing next to me behind the tree. He said, uh, he just let the car roll. And and it was a brilliant uh, tactical maneuver because they fired at the, at the car, thinking that there were more cops in the car. So they were able to divert some of the firepower uh, into the vehicle. And, uh, and um, well, not and only so, that, they get them to expend their ammunition, right, hoping to right. deplete their ammo, right? Yeah, that's exactly what, what happened. When you're taking yeah. incoming rounds, a three-inch tree, man, you can hide behind a three-inch tree. You know, they did effectively, yeah. They didn't get hit, <laughs> you know. But, you know, then then what happened was cops were coming from all over. You heard that call, right? So when you put out a call like that, where do the cops come from? They don't come from the north or the east or the west, right? They come from 360 degrees of the compass. And they all get to the scene and they listen for gunfire and then they run to that. But what happened was they set up a circular ambush, Right, so, so they're coming from all over. They get to the scene, and Tamalin is throwing bombs now, and shooting, and so guys from all degrees of the compass are firing at Tamalin, and the bullets are. Anybody that's been in the military knows that a circular ambush isn't a really good idea, right? Circular firing squad, either. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So. Um, that's when Dick Dunahue arrives from the MBTA, and he was uh, one of Sean Collier's classmates and a very good friend of his. And uh, Dick got out to engage them in gunfire and got hit with a round from an M4 from one of the police officers who was in this uh, un- uncoordinated kind of, you know, shooting. Well, the technical term is called a Charlie Foxtrot. Uh, yeah, I think that would be about right. Yeah. yeah, that would be about right. Yeah. yeah. So well, but what? So that M4 round, we're talking about a 223, right? That's hitting him in the groin. I mean, there's a lot right. of places you can get hit, but a lot of vital blood vessels. Yeah. I mean, how close does Dick come to buying the farm from that shot? Well, when I got to the scene, uh, I was told he was dead. He said they said that we he bled, quote unquote he bled out he's dead he's on he's over to uh, Mount Auburn 
Uh, and the, the emergency room doc, who I talked to years later, uh, said that he was almost completely desanguinated, that, that, that he had no volume of blood uh, at that point in time. But they started a protocol that is, is uh, fairly new that, that uh, Mass General uses, and this doctor was a Mass General doctor, and she saved his life. Wow. What his day to go. Yeah. Well, roll back before you show up to the scene, right? So there's lots of shooting going on. What happens with um, the engagement with Tamerlan? Who engages him and what happens at that point? So um, I got to know Sergeant Jeff Pugilisi and his wife afterwards. He's a real hero of this incident. Um, Jeff was working a detail, which is famous in Massachusetts, right? You work private pay details when you're not working. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was working at a theater with a bunch of teenagers, you know, and he was at the theater and his... Uh, in his family uh, family van, you know, his little... The soccer van. mobile. Yeah. Exactly, right. And um, he's got a radio with him. He leaves, the, um, he leaves the assignment, and he's driving home, and he hears this gunshot, you know, need assistance thing. So he goes racing over in his family van, and uh, he jumps out and um, sees what's happening. He's got two guys in front of him that are pinned down behind a... Uh, Sapling. Uh, no, no, no. They, they, they are on the other side of the street. Okay. Jeff is on this side of the street. And there's two Boston cops pinned down next to a, um, a, a stairway, a, a concrete stairway. And they're shooting over the stairway. So Jeff sees that they're shooting down, and he's, he was in the military, and he realizes that a flanking maneuver might be in order here. So he runs to the back of the tenement, jumps a couple of fences, comes down on the other side of where Tamalin is shooting. And now he sees Tamalin standing behind a car shooting at the cops. So Jeff um, engages him. And he starts to fire at him, but he can't hit him uh, because the rounds are hitting the car. Tamalin sees Jeff and he starts shooting at Jeff. Now this is the main gunfight going on. Jeff... Tamerlan doesn't know it, but Jeff is the armorer for the Watertown Police Department. He's been shooting his whole life. And he said to me, I did something that I practiced, but I never thought I would ever use it. And I said, what's that? He said, I, I, I did skip shooting. So I read about that, and I, and I knew what he was talking about. But he basically uh, realized that the rounds weren't getting through to Tamerlan, so he skipped a couple off the pavement, and he hit Tamerlan in his ankles. He had bullet holes in his ankles, and he was pissed. <laughs> so Damn. he came out from cover. Tamalin came out from cover and started to walk towards Jeff shooting at him. And this is after and Jeff, being shot in the feet and the ankles from the skip shots. He's still walking. Right. I think he was on something because what do you hear the rest of the story? Yeah. Um he he walked towards Jeff and Jeff opened up on him. And he said Tamalin fired to to lock back. And um he had and for if, folks if you, that don't know what that is. That's that's just let people know what lockback is. Yeah. So when you're firing a semi-automatic pistol, when you fire the last shot, um, the slide locks back, so it enables you to reload quickly. But these guys didn't have extra ammo, so once it went to lockback, they were out of bullets. Um, but the bullets that Tamalin had fired. If you were to stand where Jeff was standing and look behind him, there's ho bullet holes in the house all around him. Tamalin was shooting wild. He didn't hit Jeff. But Jeff shot Tamalin six times in the chest. There were six bullets in his chest. 
Tamerlan, despite that, took the empty gun and threw it at Jeff and hit him with it. And then Jeff charged them and tackled them and knocked them on the ground. He was fighting with Jeff, still, with all of this uh, injury. This is a guy who's taken two shots, a couple shots at least, to the ankle, six shots to the torso, and he is still up and fighting? He's still fighting, yep. They were having trouble getting the handcuffs on him. It was Jeff and two other cops wrestling him. Unbelievable. Um, yeah. So, um, but we've seen all this. We've seen that superhuman strength that occurs among people that are PCP, on drugs. And, you know, or something you know, like that. Yeah. That yeah, right. So what happened was one of the other cops looked up and saw that Joe Carr had got in the other vehicle, not the S, not the, uh, um, the I'm Civic, sorry, he got the, in the SUV. He did. He yeah, got, got in into the Mercedes. Mercedes. Turned their Mercedes around and came driving at them at a high rate of speed. They were... They saw him coming, and the cop won them, and the three cops were able to jump off Tamalin and back up. And literally, I mean, literally just get out of the way. And, and Jeff said, Tamalin was too heavy. He said, I tried to pull him, but I couldn't I couldn't move him. And uh, the vehicle came down and hit Tamalin and dragged him 50 feet underneath the car. Um, matter of fact, Joker had to stop the car and back up and go around him to get away. Um, and then... When he was, uh, he was actually, he, he was still alive when the ambulance got there. He died on the way to the hospital. So, so Joe Carr killed his own brother. Essentially, yeah. I got to tell you, there's nothing sad about that at all. Yeah. Well, it no. saved the taxpayers a lot of money. Um, yeah, it well, did. Did he know, did, did any information come out later at the time? Did he know that he had run over his own brother at the time? Or that I, I never he heard. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I gotta assume he did, but I but I don't know for certain. Okay. Yeah, because I know when he was eventually this is later, he you know, he's in pain and taken into custody. His biggest question was, is his brother still alive? Yeah. Um Well let let's so keep going with that, Ed, because now now what you've got is the worst case scenario, which is you still got somebody who now is uh highly dangerous. They've already killed a cop, they've already planted bombs. And now they've been able to escape the cord, and they've been able to escape the perimeter, and now he's gone. I mean, that's almost like a worst-case scenario at this point, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, we um, after Ed, De- I met Ed DeVoe, the police chief from Watertown, on the corner there um, amid all the explosives, and we put together a plan to secure uh, a, a ten block. First, first we said ten blocks, and we said twenty blocks radius around the last place we saw a Joker. Uh, so we were setting that up. And then once we started to make um, assignments uh, to our command staff so that they would get things straight, straightened out, uh, we took a ride up the street and found the SUV. It had gone across a main street up a hill, and it was sitting at the top of the hill. And uh, Joe Carr was on foot somewhere in the area. Do you know so, why he abandoned it? Did something happen to the vehicle, or did he just decided he needed to get out on foot and escape? I think it was the latter. The vehicle seemed to be in running shape. Okay. Plus, he's been shot now, right? Yeah, yeah. He, he there was blood and urine found behind it. A, a um, in the morning, uh, there was a garage there, and he apparently went into a, across a couple of yards and then hid out behind a garage for a little while. And then at daybreak, he made his way over to the boat. So, what's going on now? So, um, you're out there at the scene, right? This is a so about one thirty in the morning. Uh, Tamerlan's declared dead. He's over at uh, Beth Israel, which is. Ironic because there's a lot of bombing victims that are there as well too. 
uh, that right. he's brought in, right? So walk through that. What happens for the rest of the night? You're setting up this perimeter. Uh, at some point, Daybreak's got to come. You guys got some big decisions coming up with public transportation, um, things like that. How do, how, do you, how do you handle those decisions? What's going on? Well, we uh, set up a command post uh, in a in a huge parking lot near that near the Arsenal Mall. Um, we brought in all sorts of uh, equipment. Uh, we had military equipment there, uh, helicopters, everything that we needed were available to us. Uh, but the but the main center was a small van um, that we were all in, and um, there was me, um, Mayor Menino, uh Governor Patrick, uh, Rick Delorier from the FBI, uh, the Colonel from the State Police, um, all the you know, and, and Eddie DeVoe, and all the police players, and uh, and we sat down with a map and we looked over what we had, and um, we we were getting all kinds of information. We 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 got word that an Uber had picked up a client just after the shootout and taken them to South Station. And there was a train going to New York, and we felt that the guy was probably on the train to New York. So we called the uh, Connecticut State Police and the Railroad Police, and they stopped the train in Stamford, and they searched it. Uh, we had reports of uh, people covered in blood over by the U.S. Attorney's Office. We sent people over there. Uh, there was a vehicle that we stopped that had suspects in it from Dagestan over on uh, Starro Drive, and that turned into a big investigation because they thought they had explosives. Turned out to be the explosives were just uh, equipment from Mass Electric that had fallen on the street at the same place where they didn't stop. There was a lot of misinformation over the course of those hours, uh, but the key to it was keeping the perimeter tight and then collapsing the perimeter in with the SWAT teams as we searched, and that's what we did over and over and over again, just slowly eliminating the place where this guy might be. And um, it went on all day. Uh, as it got into the evening, um, I mean, we had guys fainting who had been up for too long. Um, we had all, all kinds of challenges feeding people, getting supplies out to them. The you whole know, logistical we had issue. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're back to the National Incident Management System, right? This is really, in a sense, the way you would work a disaster, you know, or a terrorist event is you got to People got to be fed. They got to have sleep. They got to have something yep. to drink, right? Toilets, yeah, even simple stuff like yep. that. Exactly. Yep. All the human things that play a role in it. But uh, anyway, it, it went on all day, and then uh, the president called the governor and said, uh, "I'm concerned about this martial law that you guys have declared there. I think you ought to end it." So the governor called and said, "How are you guys doing in the search?" And I, I basically said, "Well, we need another hour or so to wrap it up, but." Uh, we're, you know, it's coming to an end. We haven't found him. And he said, all right, I'm going to end it. So he had a press conference and uh, said that the, uh, you know, the lockdown order was, was off and that we should all, um, you know, sort of go about our business, but keep an eye out for this guy. He's still around. We don't know where he is. And, um, and we all said, all right. So the SWAT team, our SWAT team was sticking around for another hour or so to finish the very area that we found him in. And um, and was I this left. area inside or outside your original perimeter? It was inside, just inside, okay. just inside. Yeah. And um, and I know there have been reports to the contrary, but if you go back and look at it, it was right. In, it was just inside what we said to to lock down the twenty block perimeter. You, he right. was just right inside that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I had left. I was just about to my house, and. Um, 
we get the call that there's been a sighting of the guy in a boat in Watertown. So we turned the car around instead of racing back, and I, I talked to my sergeant, and I said to him, I, I asked him the ultimate question, which was, where is the water in Watertown? There, there is no water in Watertown. The boat was in a backyard. It wasn't in the water. But when they said a boat, I just assumed it was in the water someplace. But I was wrong. Uh, the only water in Watertown is... Uh, <laughs> is on their water tower. Well, the river the, the river goes through it. And, uh, you know, the Charles River comes down and meanders through. But there's no boats up there other than the skulls. So that was not, uh, that was not good information. Anyway, um, as I was driving back, uh, again... I'm hearing radio transmissions with gunfire in the background. Um, I'm talking to a sergeant, uh, actually a lieutenant, uh, Bobby Murner, at the scene. And um, he said, we got him behind the boat, and we got a guy. And then all of a sudden, they just light him up. They, there's hundreds of rounds going in the background. And I, and I turned to Tommy, and I said, oh, shit, they're killing him. They, he, he's not going to make it. Um, we get to the scene, and lucky for him, he was in the keel of the boat. And uh, the bullets all went uh, went over his head, and he survived it. So um, the helicopter, state police helicopter, came in with the Fleur. They were able to see him moving in the boat. The uh, FBI hostage team came in. Those guys were tremendous. They, they, you know, they met us outside. Eddie and I talked to them, and um, they did exactly what you know. They always came to us to clear everything they were going to do. We all agreed to it. They did it, and eventually. Um, they got him. Not before he left the manifesto on the uh, on the, uh, uh, the the side of the boat inside, uh, basically confessing to everything that he did and saying it was because of the United States aggression in his home country uh, that he was doing this. His home country of Dagestan. Well, Chechnya, Dagestan. Okay. Tamilin visited Dagestan. But they were born in Chechnya and migrated to the United States, immigrated to the United States. The Chechnyans disavowed them, saying that uh, they were brought up in the United States. And that's largely true. They were very young when they came here. Hmm. But, you know, may, you know, I'm not the smartest guy uh, on this podcast, but if I remember right, I think Chechnya has more problems from Russia than they do the United States. Right. Um that's a very, very difficult region uh, to to separate the good guys from the bad guys. Oh man! Uh, you know the the Russians have Islamic terrorists living in Dagestan mm-hmm. that have targeted the Russians. Uh, so our enemy is our friend in this case. I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to work it out. I'll leave that to the diplomats. The bottom line is these guys uh, got disenchanted with the United States and. Um, and uh, killed women and children, and this is just unforgivable. Yeah, just so there's no question about that. Regardless of their motors, motives, these guys are nothing more than cowards. Yeah. Anybody that kills innocent, unarmed people for whatever reason, it, it, there's no reason in the world to justify that. You're nothing more than a coward. Right. All these mass shootings we're seeing around here, cowards. Well, and they they specifically targeted places where there were kids like that. It's not like they, they, mm-hmm. it's not like they were setting it up next to a police station or whatever else. They targeted families. Yeah. They targeted kids. Right. He put that bomb right behind Martin Richard and his sister Jane. Jane lost her leg. Martin was killed, and the mother was was partially blinded. It, it, Jeez. Hey, I, I want to play something for you, Ed, though, because this is the resolution of it. This is about two and a half minutes, but I, I want you to listen to it because there's a special part in here that concerns you. Hang on here. 316 to the 903. Do you want us to uh, 
Get behind this bear cat as it approaches. Uh, Frank, just hold. I'm not sure what they're going to do here. I don't know if they're going to start trying to work away on that boat again, okay? Just hold, hold your position. I don't want you right up on top of the boat while they're doing their thing. Hey, we got it. We'll maintain the 3 4 corner. Just keep an eye on that garage, all right? Subject in custody. Subject in custody. Subject in custody. Hold back. Hold back. This is still a hot scene. Okay. Hold back. Everyone hold your position. All units, hold your position. Hold your position. Still a hot scene. Medic. Medic. Nine six one. Get the ambulance down here now, please. All right. We need the ambulance down there now. Ambulance down to the road. Go, Charlie White, come through. Attention all officers. Prior to UCC, we have our second suspect of the Boston Marathon bombing in custody. Again, we have our second suspect in custody in Watertown. The time is 2015. Good job, gentlemen. Good job. Never better. Yeah, I hadn't heard that actually. I was with the mayor when he when he made the statement. So, um, right, thanks for playing it. I, I hadn't heard that. Now, tell uh, us who Yankee Charlie One is. That's me. Those are my call. Those are my call letters. Yankee Charlie One. What does that stand for? You, I have you, no idea. You co- <laughs> the, the, the huge commissioner. <laughs> yeah, whatever. I, I I just did what I was told. <laughs> oh, nice. How did that feel? Uh, to just describe all of this shit going down. When you hear that call, one in custody, you know, subject in custody. What do you What are you thinking? Well, I, I, what I what I was thinking was what I said. I was very proud of the work that those guys did, and. Um, it was tireless. You know what I mean. They worked around the clock. They they uh, did very courageous things. Um, we made a few mistakes, but the bottom line was, and and this was something that Sean Foley, the uh, the number two guy in the bureau, told me when I was in Washington. He looked at me and he said, "I'd gone into the director's office after I testified. They want to they wanted to talk about some of the testimony, and I went in to see them. And Sean said, uh, "Do you realize what you've done?" And I thought to myself, what the hell is he talking about? I said, no, what? He said, in 102 or 104 hours, you guys captured the most significant terrorist event since uh, 9-11. And I was like, yeah, well, thanks. That was I hadn't really done the math, but uh, it was nice of him to recognize it. And uh, it was even nicer to be involved in it, you know. Job well done. Thanks. 
Well, I want to follow up on one other thing. We want to end up on a light note, but before we do, I want to finish up with one thing. The math that you talked about earlier, there were three victims from the bombing. There was Officer Sean Collier, but there was a fifth officer, a Boston PD officer, who, because of the blast a year later, suffered an aneurysm, and that was Dennis uh, Simmons. Dennis Simmons, yep. Tell, tell us about that. Uh, Dennis uh, was at the scene uh, when the uh, in Watertown, and uh, uh, you know, I, 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 when this all transpired, I had already left the department, so I don't have any intimate knowledge of exactly what the circumstances were, except to say that uh, the doctors made it clear that the the uh, vibration and the uh, trauma from being close to those explosions uh, had had uh, done something in his head uh, that caused a. Uh, an injury that ultimately killed him. So, An aneurysm. Uh, and he was only yeah. 28 years old. Right. Young guy, very good officer, solid, solid cop. And, uh, you know, some uh, tragically, a lot of injuries continue for years afterwards. We saw that in 9-11. We saw it here. Um, things like hearing loss that some people are still dealing with, tinnitus. Small, small things, but still uh, life-changing, really. Oh. How about you? How did it change you? Well, it certainly was a watershed event in 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 my career and and in uh, in uh, you know in the history of the city and um, I, I I had a really hard time um, buying drinks in Boston for a year or so after that. Everybody was was uh, being very nice to me and uh, and I think that that's still the case. I uh, I still have people that come up to me and thank me for what uh, what happened. Um, but but the biggest change in me was understanding the importance of planning uh, and and working as a team. And if we hadn't put all that time into some sometimes boring planning of you know you go to a tabletop and you think oh another tabletop geez, but the truth of the matter is you fight the way you plan. And if we hadn't done all that, we wouldn't have been able to uh, to run these guys down so quickly and, and remove the threat, which is really what we did. You know, and when we say job well done, uh, Commissioner, we're also, uh, that goes out to all the police officers in the Metro Boston area. Right. And like we said at the very beginning, I love the saying Boston Strong. Yeah. Sums yeah. it all. Yeah, it really does. It really does. He, uh, whoever came up with that, um, uh, you should know, have trademarked it. They would have been making a shit ton of money right yeah, now. They sure yeah, would have. Yeah. <laughs> hey, um, but there was one other thing I want to call out too. Yeah. I know you said the same thing too. They were talking about the dispatchers too. A, a lot of times they go unrecognized. And when we're recording this, mm -hmm. the previous week was National Telecommunications Week. You know, National Telecommunicators Week. And we've all worked with people who have just been super. They never work the road. But they're your lifeline. When I was a trooper, I know, Steve, when you were an officer, Ed, same thing when you're out there, your dispatcher is your lifeline, your communicator. Yep. Talk about the great work that the people in communications did helping you manage everything from the explosion all the way up through the, the shootout and the capture. Well, it's remarkable to hear the calm and uh, controlling voice that they have. You know, a lot of times they're doing things that uh, seem to be boring, but the truth of the matter is they're speaking with the authority of the commander of the uh, police department of the, of the commissioner and um and so because of that they end up taking charge and 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 doing things in in being sort of separated from the the excitement and the uh uh the 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 uh, you know the danger on the street they're able to look at it from a from an objective perspective and get everybody who is screaming and hollering from help 
uh, for help coordinated so that there can be a rational response to what's going on. So uh, you heard them uh, when Danny Keeler was first screaming for assistance. And Danny is one of our most uh, experienced guys in Boston, uh, but he was uh, clearly frazzled by what happened. Mm-hmm. And the calming voice of the dispatcher made a difference. These people are unsung heroes. They, they, um, they often suffer PTSD that we don't hear about. Um, it, it is difficult to talk to people the way that they talk to them in the middle of all of the crisis that they're in. Uh, but they also uh, basically play a command role in, in the police department. So they are definitely, uh, unfortunately, somewhat undervalued, but critical to, yeah. uh, to what we do. And I, I appreciate all that they do all the time. Yeah, and you know they know a lot of the people that are that are suffering through the crisis out there at that time. So that's their friends, right. yep. their colleagues, their friends. Hey, um, did you get a chance to go to Sean's funeral? I did. Yeah, I sat uh, with the U.S. Attorney and uh, and uh, uh, Rick Delorier. There was a contingent of us up front uh, to the right of the DS. Talk, talk about that. Was I remember seeing some pictures uh, of Bendicott funerals? You know, Steve has. Even down in Columbia, you know, a lot of people come out, but this is one that kind of had an impact. There were people far away as Australia, you know, coming in internationally in for this. What what brought people in like that? Well, I mean, first of all, it was an it was an international event, so I think it it brought the attention of people that wouldn't that wouldn't be attentive to a a robbery or something that happened. Right? This was a an attack on the United States um, by actors that were attempting to so chaos in the country and Sean paid the ultimate price in, in defending the country. So I think people uh, were grateful for that. But the other thing was um, he was really well thought of in the MIT community and MIT has incredible international reach. And, uh, and it's just like people that went to Harvard, you meet them from all over the, the world um, and they ask you very specific questions about Harvard Square. When was the last time you were in Grendel's? You know, uh, they it, know quickly it, it, whether or not you really went there. Or you're just well, a poser. Ex- exactly. Yeah. Right. And uh, and so um, I think that that played a role in this too. The academic community was very much in in evidence and, and supportive of the police during that time. Let's kind of recap because I want to finish up with what you're currently working on, but we just kind of want to bring things to a close because. What eventually happened was, uh, you know, Jokar is the survivor. By the way, just a quick point of uh, uh, one small connection to the case is um, my wife and I are sitting watching TV and the FBI agents just see them searching a house and it's one of the Sarnaevs' residents. And I see my sister-in-law walking out of the front door holding a box of evidence. She's an FBI agent. Oh, no kidding. Out of the Rockville, uh, Maryland uh, RA at that time. And I was like, hey, it's her. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They brought everybody in from all over the country. It was all hands on deck. You know, we, we kid a lot of people. And we, we have our good-natured ribbing, but look, when when it hits the fan, and when I mean it, I mean when the shit hits the fan and you need help, what you did was building the relationships. That's what made this work. You just didn't come in as like, we're going to do it my way. You, been, you spent years, decades, building relationships, and the one time you really needed those relationships, guess what? They worked. They were there, yeah. No question about it. You're absolutely right, Morgan. You know, in our pre-call, you had also mentioned uh, another group of unsung heroes, and that's the community. Right. Their response to you of stepping up to the plate and, and adhering to the orders. I mean, nobody wants to put martial law out there. You don't want to restrict our freedoms here in the United States. And it kind of, quite honestly, kind of pisses me off that Washington's second-guessing you guys on on uh, declaring martial law. Well, this is a very special instance. You're not, you're not doing it to create a dictatorship 
like happens in third world countries. That was for a very specific reason. But you said, you know, without their participation and assistance, would you have been as successful as you were as quickly as you were? No, absolutely not. There, were, there was absolutely no way we would have been able to get done what we got done. Uh, this guy would have been in the wind, and uh, who knows what he would have done afterwards. So um, it was it was all hands on deck, including the community, and the community played an enormous role in this. Yeah, and you mentioned not being able to buy a drink. There's no better feeling in the world than when somebody in the community comes up and thanks you for a job well done. Isn't right. It? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We don't do it for the pay, but free drinks, you count I'm in. I'm there. Well, yeah. I don't drink alcohol, but donuts, I'm good with donuts. I'm a well you don't drink anymore, Steve. I know your stories about Colombia, so yeah. <laughs> Oh no, wait a minute. Really quick, Steve, tell them about the ring of gold. Oh yeah, that's an ugly story about involves uh, Cuervo Gold. Let's just leave it at that. Oh no, oh, no, no, no! Come on, come on! Anytime okay. a DEA agent, you know, is moving on, what happens, Steve? In, in Colombia, we had a going away ritual, and that was called the the Circle of Gold, in which all the agents had to get up in a circle, and we've gone through as many as five bottles of Cuervo Gold to say wow. goodbye. Oh man! I don't think anybody said goodbye. We all just kind of fell out the floor, went to the bathroom, One yeah. tequila, two tequila, three tequila, floor. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. that's something. <laughs> well, but, so let's let's cap this out because what eventually happens is Jokar tries his best, but he goes to court. It, they'd only take 11 and a half hours before they convict his sorry ass, and he is sent to ADX Supermax in Florence, Colorado, to join the likes of El Chapo, who we had uh, Paul Crane and Abe Perez on from DEA that led the hunt for El Chapo. Wow. Um, they've got Ted Kaczynski in there. You've got... Uh, I actually helped the FBI out on uh, part of the Oklahoma City bombing case because those sons of bitches built the bomb. They got the Ryder rental truck one mile down the road from where my mom lived, and they built it at Gary County State Lake, five miles from the front door of my boyhood home. So, I mean, I had – anyway, all of those – what a collection of people, right? However, though, um, there were – I want to close out with this, and then we talk about you. There are some things that bother me, though. Um, about this and just digging into this. And one of them is actually the government's own response to the motion to to suppress. And in there, they say government's opposition to defendants motion to suppress statements Uh, of the two remote control detonators used during the marathon bombings. Only one was recovered, suggesting that the Sarnayevs or someone else had retained the use of the other one for possible use with additional bombs. And then the other part was the Sarnayevs also appeared to have crushed and emptied hundreds of individual fireworks. We talk about the black powder. Therefore, it's reasonable to expect that if the Sarnayevs have crushed this, there'd be a lot more around yet searches of the, the three vehicles yielded virtually no traces, strongly suggesting that others had built or at least helped the Sarnayevs build the bombs and thus might have built, built more. So that leads me up to this kind of, for me, a penultimate question. Did they act alone? Are there other people out there you believe are involved in the Boston Marathon bombing that have yet to be identified or accounted uh, for? Well, I, 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 I don't think they acted alone in the construction of that device. Um, as as to who did that and what kind of evidence you have on it, um, I'll leave that up to the people that are doing the follow-on investigation. But um, I, I, I don't think those devices were made from Inspire magazine or from the Internet, uh, and I don't think you can squeeze that much gunpowder out of a firework uh, to make something like that. I think that uh, there's something else going on there. And I and I, I will tell you that that investigation is still active. So I hope that um, if they're if they get enough evidence and they can point to somebody else that they that they bring them in. What are Ed, what are you doing now? Uh, I run a security consulting business. Um, we um, 
we do risk management and uh, and consulting and and some healthcare now with uh, COVID. So um, we have a very busy practice here. I have about a dozen employees full time and over a hundred contractors that work with us on different uh, cases that we work on. From you know everything from uh, litigation support and investigations to background checks to uh, executive protection. Now, and I'm sure you're still in demand uh, from other police agencies, from Washington, from the government in Massachusetts. I mean, you've got so, you've got a, a wealth of experience there that just shouldn't be wasted. Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, you know, on the consulting side, I, I do uh, I do a fair amount of work, and I enjoy it. So uh, there's life after policing, as you two guys know. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. Well, next thing you know, you'll be starting a podcast. <laughs> no rush on that. Yeah. Well, you also, I understand, spent a ton of money coming up with the name for your firm. What is the name of your firm? Yes, it's very, very difficult. Write this down. It's called Edward Davis Company. <laughs> Ta-da! There should be some explosion or something in the background. You know, I'll need to spend a lot of money for that marketing. Call us if you need anything. <laughs> well, no, but, but you know, but you, you have joined a select group of people who, unfortunately, fortunately, you had the knowledge and the experience to do this, but unfortunately, you had to have the event. But you can now share that with other people, because I'm thinking of, you were talking about, um, we've seen this happen in Northern Ireland. Uh, Hugh Ward uh, became the first police commissioner over there, and you know they transitioned from being the Royal Ulster Constabulary to the police service in Northern Ireland. Lots yep. of lessons out of that. You were talking yep. about. Kathy I know. Hill. I know her, uh, Hugh pretty well. I, oh. it, I've had I've been very lucky to have worked with all of these people. Um, you know, I, I mentioned London, but I was in uh, um, Jordan and uh, in Israel. And, uh, you know, I've traveled uh, to Singapore and a few other countries. Uh, I've, I've had, you know, we're doing work now in India. It, it's, uh, it's, a great, uh, it's a great job. Do you, have you been to New Delhi yet? I passed on India. I sent a couple of my guys over there, but uh, I've heard of Delhi Belly, and I figured I, I, I didn't need that. <laughs> well, you should go to, I, I did some work over there. Uh, we did it with the, uh, called the Greyhounds. They're a, basically a direct action, a counterterrorism unit in Andhra Pradesh province. And uh, we got to go visit their compound. It was really cool. But we stayed in New Delhi at the Taj, and there's this place out there called the Red Fort. If you ever go out there, it is. it was originally built with the British and stuff, but it is it's huge and the tea really? service at four o'clock i'm telling you that's great it's terrific <laughs> so it. don't worry about the deli belly just eat stuff from the snack bar <laughs> <laughs> All right, i gotta tell you javier and i were lucky enough to go over there too we went to new delhi mumbai and Hyderabad, three different cities in india some of the nicest people we've ever met anywhere in the world i mean just yeah. and, and what it is the this is might you might find this a little hard to believe the country with the biggest narcos fans is india <laughs> well isn't that something you know it's funny um i uh, the police chief from mumbai came over after the attack and uh i spent some time with him in boston and i agree some of the nicest people ever they really are yeah that was yeah. interesting too that was the lashkari taiba when i was over in pakistan we had some concerns about them back then and they actually this was uh, like you say just almost a textbook I, I know what you're saying when you say you're over there and you're seeing what happens in Mumbai, and now you're thinking, man, it's the same thing, you know, happening here, right? So, right. Yeah. Yeah. Worst, hey, it's a worst-case scenario, you know? Let's, let's close this out, though. We've we got to ask you, though, because you almost didn't have a part in the movie Patriot's Day with Mark Wahlberg, and, but you ended up having a short cameo. How did that cameo come about for the movie? Well, I spent a lot of time with Mark and uh, and Peter Berg, the the director, um, as well as John Goodman and, and his wife, um, and, and so I helped them, you know, 
understand what was happening and it sort of acted as an advisor. It definitely acted as an advisor to the film. Um, but, um, you know, they, they, um, they had a, a very specific story to tell and they told it. And then at the end of it, uh, they wanted to put some real life people who were involved. So they had me and Jeff Pugilisi and a couple of other people, uh, just give a message at the end. So, um, I spent some time out in Hollywood with them. It was a very interesting experience. Well, we got to ask you. So we have what we call the patented narcometer. I don't know if it's patented or narc. You know, it's it's but sure it's it our is, way. Sure of, it is. It's patented. We <laughs> want to rate it on two ways. One, if whether or not you enjoyed it, and number two, how accurate it was. So, number one, on a scale of one to ten kilos, one being you hated it, ten kilos, it's like it's off the charts. Did you watch the movie? First of all, did you watch the movie Patriots Day? I did. I hate to ask that question because sometimes people go, no, I don't want to see this. I know about it. All right. Scale of one to 10, how much did you like it? How many kilos? Oh, I liked it. It was nine kilos. Oh, Mark's going to be pissed. You didn't give him 10. You're not going to be invited back to work out again. All right. Nine's pretty, nine's pretty good. Nine's not bad. But as we know from Steve, sometimes Hollywood, you know, fact and reality. Well, you lived it. You know what yeah. I mean? It was perfect. So yeah. Nine's, yeah. nine but, would be good. But let's talk about, but from an accuracy standpoint, because we know Mark Wahlberg was kind of a, a, a synthesized character. He wasn't, there wasn't a guy just like him, right? He was a combination of, of ones. But on a scale of one to 10, in terms of how accurately it represented the events that day, scale of one to 10 kilos, one being not even close, 10 being they nailed it. Where, where would you put the movie at? It was very accurate. Um, they, they, there was some Hollywood things in there, cars flipping over and things like that that didn't happen. So, um, I, you know, it, it's some of the, uh, I would say eight or nine uh, right. on on the on the reality of it. Maybe eight. Okay, that's, that's you know what that's I think that's high. very high. Yeah, yeah. yeah. some places I, we've we've had ratings as low as one or two. I think when we talked uh, to uh, Jeff Moore about the mule and uh, yeah yeah, sure. uh, and then uh, Zach about the we actually talked to one of the DEA agents who helped bring down Victor Booth, the Merchant of Death that Nicholas Cage played in the movie. No kidding. Wow. Well, yeah, the only real crime was Nicholas Cage's acting. You know. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to I want to brag to Steve a little bit. The scale of one to ten kilos isn't enough. Our, our largest seizure was twenty seven kilos, so it should be one to twenty seven kilos. All right, well, <laughs> we, we may have to alter that in the future. Ah, uh, uh, <laughs> well, other other if we did it in Steve's early days, the scale would have been one to two ounces because that was Steve's biggest bust <laughs> that's it, before that's he it. goes to so Florida mine for a long time. Yeah. and gets a five hundred kilo bust. And he goes, he Steve he won't tell you this, but Steve admitted it to me in private. He says I didn't. No, there were 500 kilos in the whole world when we made that bus. That's funny. All right. Well, hey, man, this All has right. been great. And, and Ed, you have actually spent a lot of time with us. I can't tell you, number one, how much we appreciate it. But number two, the whole intent of this is to give people the real story behind what happened. Right. Yep. You know, and you just being there and just hearing these stories, you know, that, that went on. I mean, the, the real heroes, like you say, uh, those iconic pictures of the Boston PD, you see them in the vest, you know, with the, yep. the, those nice, those bus driver hats on and yep. they're immediately responding i mean that just says loads about your leadership of the department and Thanks. how well you had positioned this and you can't see this the folks can't but this is me saluting you sir uh, saying we uh, are proud of thank the you morgan you very kind of you i, I will appreciate buy you a, it i will buy you a drink the next time hopefully icp i guess will have one is it going to be in new orleans this year it it's supposed to be, yeah, yeah, yeah kind of a, a scaled it. down one but uh yeah maybe we'll yeah, go I'm, going, I'm going on my first business trip in a week so oh be nice if, to get back. If you're at ICP, come to the vendor area. Check out 908 Devices. Not going to be there. All right, great. I'll look you up. Would love to meet you in person, sir. As would I. That'll be. That's a date. Well, let's go Absolutely. down Bourbon Street too. 
Oh, Been there, man. done that. Don't need to go back. Yeah. How many hurricanes can a guy drink? Uh, Pat, over there at Patty O'Brien's. I'll tell you, I was there one night. We drank uh, yeah. a lot of them, yes. Uh, I can I tell you a story I, about uh, Patty's. Oh, well, finish up with a good story. No, 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 no. no. Oh, oh, That's for a beer. Oh, exactly. Sorry, folks. The following podcast is not suitable for younger audiences. So. Okay, hey, Ed, well, look, we want to thank you again. Thank you so much. Y- y'all stay tuned. Uh, Steve and I in the outro will give you more details about where to find this information and stuff but again Ed, best of luck to you on your next phase of life and uh we look forward uh, maybe i'll be down at icp i'll see if i can sneak my way in that'd be fantastic it'd be great to catch up with you guys Well, Steve, I'm glad you didn't give it away because it was one of those things that kind of blows people away. I mean, just to hear him say he doesn't believe the the investigation's not closed. He, Ed Davis, the commissioner, the former commissioner, but the commissioner at the time of the Boston police, thinks there are others involved in this plot. And that is just so scary. And that's, you know, that's why we didn't want to give it up in the intro to this episode. But, man, I mean, just think about that. The devastation that they caused that day. How many marathons do we have? How many sporting events do we have? How many public gatherings do we have around the United States, as well as other countries? And it's just, you know, the the terrorists, we're just easy targets for them. So the fact that there might be other conspirators out there that we haven't found yet, a little bit scary. I mean, not uh, not that I've ever run a marathon, but I'm not going to, but I don't think I'm going to attend one either. Yeah, well, you know, and it's one of those things, too. It was so, quite frankly, it was kind of easy to build those bombs. I mean, but they Mm -hmm. didn't have... That's the other thing it got into too. These guys are not the brightest bulbs, you know, in the pack. Right, and right. I I highly doubt that they had the ability to build. I say relatively easy, relatively easy to get the parts, but it's complicated to build a working bomb that works like it's supposed to. It, it's just right. not something you wake up one day and go, I think I'll build a bomb. So, you know, I, I I'm I'm like with you, Steve. I think you know it's one of those things that makes you. But you know what? It makes you more aware, and it's really like, don't t- don't question assumptions. Somebody leaves a package there. I'm I'm. Even in the airport, I'm going, is that yours? You know, you need to take it with you. Maybe I'm being overly paranoid, but it's like, you know, I, I we both lived in the area on 9-11 here. We mm-hmm. both have seen the things. You From Bogota to wherever else, it's like, no, guys, you know, you need to question this stuff. So, you know, that's well, kind of the dark part of it, but go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, hats off to law enforcement in the Boston area. You guys kicked ass and took names that day. You didn't give in. You pursued yep. everything. That final gun battle with some of those guys, their stories are just unbelievable. Heroism and bravery at its finest. And that's what law enforcement is about in this country. It's not, it's not to focus on the very, very significantly very few that make bad decisions or are bad. Because you've heard us say it before. Nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. You know, I'm, I'm bad cops. I'm okay throwing them under the jail and throw the key away. I don't have a problem. That's you know, it makes us all look bad. But God bless those guys. They did a fantastic job. I was involved in some investigations a couple of times where we ended up having to charge people. But guys, that's life. You know. Um, anyway, but yep, you take an oath, man. Live up that damn oath. That's right. You I mean you raise your right hand for a reason. So. But let's get back to having some fun, though. So before we tell you about the next episode, which is this one's going to be good. Trust me on this. 
Hope you guys enjoyed that. If you did, go to Apple, give us five stars, let us know what you think about the story, about the uh, Boston Marathon bombing, about Ed Davis, about, you know, the whole thing. Just make sure you go there, give us five stars. Again, it's magic. We don't know how it happens. It's David Copperfield, Penn and Teller, David Blaine, uh, you know, street magic. We just don't know. We just know it works. Head on over to GameofCrimesPodcast.com. Get all your merch there. We'll be constantly updating it. We'll have some seasonal things coming out for merchandise as well. Maybe some live shows. We, we took, we're we taking some hints from Jimmy, James, and Sarah over at Small Town Murder about how they're doing their live online shows because it's hard to get out. And we think we'll have some fun stuff coming up. Follow us on social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and PayPal.com. Use our email, Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash Game of Crimes. And again, go to Patreon. We've got some great stuff coming out. In fact... We won't tell you what our random surprise is, but we normally don't do topical stuff on our podcast, but we are doing it on Patreon. So if you want to hear our thoughts about a ongoing topical case right now, that's where you're going to find it. So, Steve. Yes. I have to ask you one question. What? Have you thought of what your stripper name is going to be for this next episode? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was I was given a nickname when I was stationed in Greensboro, North Carolina, that I will not repeat on here. <laughs> Why? What does it sound like? What does it rhyme with? I'm not telling you. I'm not going to tell you. You just have to... Hey, you're a former criminal investigator. Go find out. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, very embarrassing. So um, I do not have a stripper name. You can call me Murph. <laughs> but why, why would we be talking about a stripper name, Murph, for our next episode? Well, our next guest is going to be uh, one of the special agents in charge from the Drug Enforcement Administration. She is in charge of the Phoenix Field Division. Her name is Sherry Oz. Sherry, uh, I haven't had the pleasure of meeting her in person yet, but we did on video, and she turned out to be a real hoot. And I, one of the most fun interviews we've done so far. She has a fantastic sense of humor. She doesn't hold back. She's extremely professional, but she also knows how to laugh at herself, which is, you know, the hell, that's what we do every time we get on the show. So um, <clears throat> she's going <laughs> to walk you through some of the uh, <laughs> challenges I guess she had coming up through the ranks, you know, starting off as a uniformed police officer and then coming over to the feds. And Well, she, she got might, to investigate the Hells Angels. Yeah, she might talk about punching somebody out there or causing somebody to get punched out. Uh, it's going to be a great episode. You guys are going to love this. Yeah, but Steve, you're, you're ignoring the stripper name. <laughs> uh, well, I don't want to talk too bad about her because I may have to pass through Phoenix and, you know, I don't want her to put me in jail when I go through there. <laughs> Well, she did have a case where she impersonated a dancer at a nightclub, a stripper. And wait till you hear her stripper name. And we all we're we're going to work on from one for Murph. So after next episode, next week it'll be a two parter as well. You guys got to give us Murph's recommended stripper name. (laughs) All right, I'm going to give you one clue to the one they gave me in Greensboro. It has it, it falls in line with my initials. So Steve Murphy. Steve Murphy. Yep. All right, I'm gonna. You've given me a clue. Oh gosh. But I, you know what? I'm hesitant to go online now to look at the uh, what everybody's going to send in. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, send your recommendations for Steve's nipples. Steve's nipples name. Steve's stripper name for his nipples. Send it to Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com or go hit us up on our main Facebook page or the Game of Crimes fan page run by our favorite mafia queen, Sandy and the gang. Yep. So go over there, give us that stuff, right? You're not going to hurt my feelings, so bring it on. That's right. Okay, guys, this rounds out this one again. 
you know, we hope you guys enjoyed it. We thought this was an amazing story. Next week is going to be, she is. It's a ton of fun. It's a two-parter. So thank you guys for hanging in there with us and playing the biggest game of all, the Game of Crimes. <laughs>